CBS presents this program in color. Last week, as you recall, our space family's lost planet was rocked by a series of savage earthquakes. Little did they dream that in less than 20 desperate hours, a cataclysmic explosion would rip apart the planet's core and disintegrate their entire world into galactic dust. Now, Penny, you look like one of those old-fashioned milkmaids coming back from the pasture. You know, it would be good to see a pasture again, walking through the grass, looking for four-leaf clover, waiting in happening in a depth that could crack the core of this planet and lay it wide open. Don, come in, Don! Right here, John. Listen, that last batch of detronium fuel tested out just fine. I think we've finally got all we need. Well, that's good news. How about the earthquake? Give you any trouble? Earthquake? What earthquake? Uh, we got it here, but good. And deeper than anything we ever had before. You better pack your gear and get back here right away. The next one we hit in your area. We'll start right back. Judy, get Will and Smith. I'll start loading the equipment. In the presence of appreciative colleagues and fellow voyagers, I now unveil... Will, Dr. Smith, we're leaving. Shh! Dad just called. He said there might be an earthquake right here in this very area. Am I or am I not going to receive the reverence this ceremony deserves? You've got it, Dr. Smith. As I was saying, William... You too. I now unveil this noble monument, a temple of immortality to the living and imperishable memory of Dr. Zachary Smith. I name thee Spirit of Space. But Dr. Smith, it doesn't even look like you. It is the abstract artistic concept of my inner self. Now can we leave? My dear boy, have you no regard for the sanctity of this moment? We've got to get out of here. Didn't you hear what Judy said? We might be right in the middle of a... Oh! Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, 
Let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Wow, Kurt, we've been on a long hiatus from this series. You know, I moved my family to another neighborhood, and you were busy running your Halloween event. I, for one, have really missed Lost in Space. How about you? Uh, you're joking, right? Because, I mean, all I've been doing since October is drowning in this Lost in Space trading card series. Printing them, packing them, shipping them. I mean, I, I, I see more of the Robinsons than my own family. In fact, I've started calling my own daughters Judy and Penny. <laughs> it's getting ridiculous around here. Uh, but it's been fun. Yeah, that's right. You've been very busy publishing that new Lost in Space trading card series. But I guess you still have hundreds of other orders to fill. Uh, well, no, actually, we're finally caught up. It took three months to do, but we're caught up. So very relieved at that. And sorry it took so long, but here we are. Oh, no worries. Uh, I'm not surprised they're a big hit because they really are fantastic. You know, I got my set and I do recommend folks get the boxed set. They're beautiful. <laughs> yes, you say that because it takes me the longest time to make them. Thanks a lot. <laughs> no, we prefer that people just order the set. Uh, but no, uh, the boxes do look terrific. Ron did a wonderful job. And they're actually distracting to put together because I keep looking at them and wanting to read them and stuff like that and stopping reading one more time. Uh, he did a phenomenal job. And he did all of this. I mean, he not only did the artwork. When you look at them, you think they're photographs. But these are gorgeous, photorealistic art. Mm. And he's a uh, excellent editor. And the, the storylines are great. I couldn't... I mean, I made little tweaks here and there, but it's nothing even worth mentioning. This has been the easiest editing job I've ever done. Uh, I can guarantee that if you like any Lost in Space trading card set, you're going to like these as much, if not better, probably better. Well, uh, before we get started here, why don't you uh, remind the listeners where they can see samples of the set and where they can order them. Wait a minute. I thought we were doing a podcast on the TV series. This is sounding more like a podcast on the card set. <laughs> uh, no, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I'm sure Ron does too. It's uh, monsterwax.com, and that's spelled like candle wax. And it's up at the top of the right-hand side of the page. You can't miss that Cyclops throwing a boulder on the chariot. So it's easy to spot the link to that. Ah. Uh. Well, Kurt, today we are talking about the 30th broadcast episode of Lost in Space, the premiere of Season 2, titled Blast Off into Space. And I guess they weren't too worried about issuing spoiler alerts back in 1966, because based on the title of this episode, I have a feeling we're about to say goodbye to the dreary sand-covered surface of pre-planus. But I, for one, am ready for a change of space. How about you, Kurt? Uh, well, you know... I'm ready for a different planet, but knowing Irwin Allen, I've got this strange feeling that whatever new planet we land on is going to look a lot like this planet <laughs> with recycled props, <laughs> boulders, sand, everything. That's <laughs> uh, true. Well, a few production notes before we begin with the story. 60-year-old British-born Peter Packer, who would wind up the series' most prolific screenwriter, delivered his initial story for Blast Off into Space in early 1966. That's because getting the Robinsons back into space was originally meant to be part of the Season 1 storyline. However, when Irwin Allen discovered how much more time and money flying the Jupiter 2 would cost, Packer was assigned two other, less special effects heavy scripts. First, the space croppers, and then a change of space. 
When CBS eventually renewed Lost in Space in late February 66, it was decided to start the fall season off with a bang and finally have the blast-off treatment developed into a finished teleplay. This tale, which featured a planetary prospector, was right up the western-loving Packer's Alley. He completed his final draft script in late April 1966. Further revisions from editor Tony Wilson followed, up to and even during the actual shoot, which ran from the 21st through the 29th of June 1966, with pickup shots filmed on the 8th and 11th of July. That's six days plus two partial days. Well, calling action on the set for the shoot was 58-year-old Nathan Juran. This would be his fourth episode of Lost in Space. Juran's previous series assignments, Return from Outer Space, The Magic Mirror, and The Space Trader had all been winners, which may be why he was selected to direct the season premiere. Juran was complimentary of producer Allen and enjoyed working for him, even though Irwin once fired him over a, quote, semi-personal matter. Apparently, Allen wasn't one to hold grudges, though because he shortly, and very weirdly, rehired the director. Besides, Juran, you may recall, had real sci-fi fantasy credentials, having directed several genre feature films, including three Ray Harryhausen movies, 20 Million Miles to Earth, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and First Men on the Moon. So, ironically, he would become one of Irwin Allen's darling boy directors, completing 13 episodes of Lost in Space, three Voyage to the Bottom of the Seas, four Time Tunnels, and five Land of the Giants. Wow, what a tease. You tell us Irwin fired him for a semi-personal matter, but you won't say what it was? I mean, that's like that old joke, want to know how to keep a fool in suspense? I'll tell you tomorrow. No, give us a hint, man. Throw the dog a bone. I wish I knew. I I, I looked everywhere. I looked through all the books. I looked online, but uh, I couldn't get a clue. And so maybe someone knows the real story out there. Any theories, Kurt? Yeah, well, you're begging for conspiracy theories because at that point, people are going to wonder. And when you think about it, there is, uh, of those four episodes you talked about, there was one that involved a third person that those other two knew about, and that's that return from outer space. And the uh, mystery man that is the, the common factor in that three-way triangle is actually a mystery mistress, the very cute and at the time unattached Sheila Matthews, Ooh. also known as the future Miss Erwin Allen. Ooh. Now, of course, I have zero evidence whatsoever to suggest that she was the source of any conflict between Jern and Allen, but you did say personal, and that's about as personal as you can get, so I wonder... Mm. Well, you've got about as much evidence as it would take the Inquirer to start something like that rolling. But who knows? Maybe Sheila was trying to get Irwin jealous and prodding him into, you know, put a ring on it, mister, that type of thing. <laughs> well, it worked, didn't it? How how long was it until they actually did get married? I think they didn't get married until after Lost in Space was off the air, but I'd have to double check that. I'm sure uh-huh. I'm sure if the fans out there can set us straight on that one, too. But it well, is... even that's kind of smart if you stop and think about it, because if she had gotten married to him before it was over, she probably wouldn't have gotten paid for those other appearances. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, this first ever color cast of Lost in Space aired on Wednesday night, September 14th, 1966, and it got a summer repeat on May 3rd, 1967. All the regular characters are featured. 52-year-old Struther Martin guest starred as the intergalactic prospector Narum. The character's name Narum was Peter Packer's clever anagram of the word minor. He also named Narum's mule Rober an anagram of Burrow. (laughs) 
Martin would eventually earn over 200 acting credits and was well-suited for this role, with numerous appearances on TV westerns such as Bonanza, The Virginian, Rawhide, and Have Gun Will Travel. On the big screen, he was a favorite of John Wayne, appearing with The Duke in five films, including two classics, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and True Grit. But his iconic career role came later as the sadistic prison warden in the 1967 film Cool Hand Luke, where he famously told Paul Newman in his high-pitched voice that... Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let, let me steal that line from you because it's one of my favorites. And he goes, uh, <laughs> now what we, what we got here is failure to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> he was great in that role, but like you said, he was sadistic, you know, which is completely opposite of the way he is in this episode of Lost in Space. In fact, in this episode, he comes across more like that character from Gunsmoke, uh, the sidekick, Festus. Yeah, oh, Festus. <laughs> he does kind of remind me of that. That's true. Mm. And acts like him too, yeah. He sure does. Well, Martin would be the first of many high-profile stars to drop in on our galactic castaways during the new season of Lost in Space. Although uncredited as usual, our old pal Dawson Palmer played the rock creature that threatens Dr. Smith and Will in the third act of this episode. Now, he, he never gets the credit he deserves. To paraphrase Christian Bale in uh, The Prestige, no one ever cares about the man in the monster suit. <laughs> <sighs> But, you know, it would be kind of fun to be him if you think about it. You know. That- oh, yeah. And they didn't know about conventions back then. So now we do care about the man in the monster suit. But back then, it was they didn't even bother putting it on the, the credits at the end of the show, you know. And a lot of these shows, he played a, a very big role as the monster. Exactly. You know, like, like, think about the one about the wishing machine. I mean, that was a pretty big role uh, as a character. I mean, that was a standout role. He didn't get any credit for that. Yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame. And the other shame about it was I was actually looking up his bio. He actually died very young. He died in 1972 at the age of 36 in an automobile accident. So that was kind of a a monster career cut short, I suppose. Yeah, and he wouldn't live long enough to get any of that adulation at the conventions. Exactly, exactly. The way that the uh, robot did. Yeah. Bob May. Exactly, yeah. That is a shame. Well, on a happier note, Let's get on with the story. As we previously heard, the Act 1 teaser starts out with a narrator announcing, Last week, as you recall, our space family's lost planet was rocked by a series of savage earthquakes. Which I guess makes sense, even though originally, viewers didn't see a cliffhanger for this story. At the end of the original season one finale, follow the leader. Well, you say that it makes sense, but does it really? I mean, uh, this is a little bit of a nitpicker alert, folks, but last week was at the end of season one. So for regular viewers, that was like six months ago. Yeah. So for me, it last time, as you recall, would have made more sense. But, you know, I recall that it's been off the air for a long time. So maybe I'm being a little bit uh, very nitpicky at that point. Just like the podcast. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh.
Yeah, well, that was an interesting opening scene with the planet quake shaking the camera and everyone falling over themselves to make it look real. Mm. They went the extra mile this time, and they had a water bucket in the foreground on the table there that was rocking, you know, and splashing. Yeah. And also in the background, they were somehow shaking the tables and stuff. It wasn't just the camera moving this time, so they, they made it look pretty sincere. But when they cut to the inside, Guy Williams inadvertently acknowledges the camera presence by refusing to turn his back to the camera even when the action requires it. At one point, he even backs up facing us instead of turning around because he's so starred for camera FaceTime, you know? I guess he's looked ahead in the script and knows that he's really getting pushed into the background in this episode, as he probably will for the rest of the season. <laughs> uh, gotta feel for him. Uh, yeah, that I did notice that. It's like the I think he was going for the radio to call the others and warn him about the quake, and he he backsteps away from the ca- camera instead of turning around to grab it. That was funny. Yeah, and he has this you know very stern look on his face the whole time, and it's uh, very square jawed and everything. Looks good, but doesn't look natural. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just say this: he does get a good share of dialogue in this episode, so he had to be happy about that. But the whole episode, he's very intense. I was thinking, man, check your blood pressure. <laughs> Did he die of a heart attack later on? Isn't that what killed him? I think he did, yeah. Lost in Space might have had a hand in that. Dr. Smith, you know, (laughs) he probably was reading an article on Jonathan Harris. (laughs) Well, as we saw, those severe planet quakes interrupted Dr. Smith's solemn unveiling ceremony for a statue that is the abstract artistic concept of his inner self titled Spirit of Space. An abstract doesn't begin to describe this cement-like sculpture because, although it's roughly the shape of a man, there are no discernible facial features at all. If anything, that figure looks more like a mummy than Dr. Smith. In fact, the most interesting parts of the memorial are the golden armillary globe that the figure holds along with an engraved metal inscription plaque hanging by a chain from the statue's arm. Hmm. Yeah, this, this looks more like a cubist interpretation of Dr. Smith. Or maybe an alien bizarro version of Zachary. It looks kind of creepy, really, but I did get a chuckle out of how the entire statue moves whenever they pull off the sheet or whenever they tap it. (laughs) This must be that lightweight stone, the same kind that hits the chariot and doesn't scratch it at all, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that is true, yeah. Well, anyway... Everyone is knocked off their feet by those powerful seismic shocks. Everyone except Dr. Smith's concrete avatar. It's still standing tall, minus the sphere, that is. Once the quake subsides, the relieved rascal returns the golden globe to the sculpture's hand and sighs. Ah, not even a crack. It will endure forever. (laughs) It seems that calm has returned to Preplanus. But before we go to opening credits, the area is rocked once more. This time, instead of a planet quake, it's a powerful ground explosion, which sends rocks and debris flying up into the sky. Now what? Turning in the direction of the fracas, as the dust clears, Dr. Smith and Will are dumbfounded by what they see next. 
rising up out of the crater left by that blast is a dead, silent, human-looking stranger wearing old-fashioned prospector's garb, complete with goggles and handpick. This visitor knows how to make an entrance, but he looks more suited for the California gold rush than an alien planet. The boys are left speechless by the unexpected sight and hold their tongues as the freaky 49er steps out of the pit and takes a few threatening steps in their direction. Yeah. (laughs) That was a cool explosion, all right, with the rocks being spewed out in all directions. But to see an old man climb out of the crater was kind of anticlimactic. I mean, what's he going to do? You know, slip in his teeth and bite us? I I was hoping... (laughs) For a return of the sand monster or something. Uh, or a giant spider or something. <laughs> like yeah. in the keeper. Something crawling out of that pit would have been a little bit more threatening. Yeah, that's true. Well, this episode is off to a rocky start, literally. But is this crusty looking caller a friend or a foe? Keep your eyes glued to your new Zenith Color TV kids until after the break to find out. Hello, everyone. This is Ron Gross, Lost in Space artist, and you are listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. When we return from the break, the episode credits are still flashing by, and we get a closer look at that menacing miner. With several days' growth of salt-and-pepper facial hair, the grizzled prospector tears off his goggles, then circles around our trio of space pioneers, and seems as surprised at seeing them as they were of him. Passing by the robot, we can see B-9's ear sensors are excitedly rotating for the first time since the last refugee from a John Wayne Western came a-callin' in Welcome Stranger. Speaking in colloquial English, in a curious high-pitched tone, the visitor seems to recognize our castaways. Ha, earth folk, from the look of you. (laughs) Snoopiest bunch I ever met. What you after? Yeah, that was a weird line for, for two reasons. First, how would he know what earthlings look like? The Robinsons were the first humans out this far, unless he happened to run into Hapgood or Tucker. But the odds of seeing either of them would be, well, astronomical. And secondly, this alien looks exactly like a human himself. There's mm-hmm. nothing different about him. Not the old clothes, not his homespun accent. He doesn't <laughs> even have the silver alien grease paint that they use later on. You know, <laughs> I mean, so why would he assume that Will and Smith are from Earth? That's not even being nitpicky because it, it's more like hit you over the head with an anvil obvious. Boy, gone are the first season dates of asking, how do you know English? <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> oh, wow. yes. Oh, yeah. That was a whole season ago, wasn't it? It was. But I guess maybe Irwin might have noticed that the more serious Star Trek never bothered to explain why English is the lingua franca of the entire universe. So why <laughs> yeah. should he? You know, and as a kid, that bothered me on Star Trek, too. It wasn't until I bought the stupid little uh, design pamphlets that showed all the blueprints and stuff like that and they had a thing in there about a universal translator i was going where was this in the series i never saw this thing you know they never popped this thing out it made total sense but it was a retroactive attempt to explain away an obvious mistake oh well yep oh well (laughs) well dr smith answers that they were much too involved in their dedication ceremony to snoop tapping smith's statue with his pick the alien grins hmm Beats me why a living man would want to fool with a dead stone. On the contrary, my dear sir, it will outlast us all. Even that earthquake left it 
completely unharmed. Uh, but that was no earthquake. That was him blasting, he says. Then he introduces himself as Nerim. Will innocently pumps the prospector for more information, and we learn that the alien hails from Hither and Yon in the galaxy of the Southern Fish, catty-quartered from Fomaha, if you know where that is. <laughs> Will says, well, I've heard of it. Maybe that's where Sibylla, Ephra, and Keel were from. They look similar. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be a fun little Easter egg. Although in the space croppers, they never actually said they were from there. They said that their ship had taken them there. And they didn't uh, call it Galaxy of the Southern Fish. They called it the Constellation of the Southern Fish. And there's a big difference because a constellation is a recognizable pattern of stars that you see from a planet, you know, as viewed from a planet. So it would make a lot of sense for a space traveler to refer to constellations since it would constantly change as they went through these, these stars. So maybe they were trying to correct that earlier blooper. Yeah, that could have been. But something tells me they don't really care all that much about... <laughs> scientific accuracy you know uh, well at any rate Smith's interested uh, my dear sir at the risk of appearing curious may I ask what were you blasting for Cosmonium Cosmonium cause I don't believe I've ever heard of it I don't suppose it's very <laughs> precious grinning ear to ear Niram says oh it is if you know how to get it and what to do with it Beaming back, Smith asks, uh, Purely out of scientific curiosity, Mr. Nearham, I wonder if we might be allowed to inspect your mining operation. Oh, naturally, we will reciprocate by letting you see our drill site. Well, reckon there's no harm. Uh, I got the claim all staked. Psst. Hm. Follow me. Eager to get a good look at Mr. Nearham's cosmonium operation, the avaricious Dr. Smith overrules Will's concerns that they need to get back to camp and drags the boy along back over to the crater where the planetary prospector first appeared. Standing at the edge of the pit, Niram explains his mine is at the bottom of a deep shaft which has been partly degravitized. It ain't a bad little ride. Just do as I do. Then, without further ado, the alien hops into the opening and disappears into the ground like Santa down the chimney. The boys peer down the hole, but all we're shown is a near bottomless pit with a less than reassuring little light at the end of the tunnel. A voice echoes up. Well, are you coming or ain't ya? Smith nervously clutches Will's hand for support. Well, we mustn't allow our fear to subdue our scientific curiosity, must we? Well then, let's go. Taking a leap of faith, the boys hop down that cosmic rabbit hole just like Niram did. And despite Dr. Smith's screams of panic, we're treated to a clever special effects shot of the floating pair descending down the rocky shaft at a gentle pace. Oh, I'm frightened. I don't like this at all. Smith may be frightened, but Will's delighted. And when they finally reach the sandy bottom with a thud... You get the impression that the boy was disappointed that the joyride was over. Yeah, that was another I, I wish I was a space kid moment, you know, for the 1960s audience. Who wouldn't want to float through air like Peter Pan? 
You know, that reminds me, you're near the Windy City. You probably heard that story about the two drunks at the top of that Chicago rotating restaurant lounge. You ever hear that story? No, no. Tell it. Tell it. Oh, yeah. That's the one where there's like three people, you know, left, the two customers and the bartender. And the one customer tells the other that at that time of year, with the wind blowing so strong, that when the lounge faces the lake, you can literally jump out of the window and it'll blow you back inside. Mm. And the other guy says, oh, no, no way. But the first one says, yeah, no, I'll prove it. We're about to face the lake now. And sure enough, when the bar clocks back around towards the lake, the first guy climbs out the window and jumps. And the other guy, he's just dumbfounded, you know, he dropped jaw watching. And he turns to shout, but the bartender is acting like this happens all the time. And he just keeps on cleaning some glasses and stuff like nothing's happening. So the customer just continues to wait for a few more seconds. And sure enough, the first guy floats back up to the window and climbs back in. And the second guy just goes, oh, man, I, I, I got to try that. And he, he jumps out the window, too, and immediately falls to his death, 70 stories straight down. Splat! You know, and the bartender just shakes his head and says to the survivor, Superman, you are one mean drunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an oldie but goldie. Yeah, that, that's funny. No, I hadn't heard that one before. But and uh, I, I hadn't thought of that until I saw that episode. <laughs> it came right flushing back. <laughs> well, Doctor Smith and Will are greeted by a giggling near him as they take in the sight of the expansive cave-like heart of his cosmonium extraction operation. Will's confused. How do they get back up? The same way they got down, says Niram. Just blow a little air out of your lungs and push off to get started. Dr. Smith's more concerned with the unusual surroundings than the exit plan. It's not the cave's eclectic collection of 19th century mining equipment from oil lamps to coal cars that has his attention. No. He's mesmerized by the ceiling, which is clustered with sparkling stalactites, and the ground that's cluttered with a fortune in precious Plum-sized diamonds. Ooh. Kurt, we've seen a lot of caves before in Lost in Space, but I have to say, I did like this one. I thought the setting added to the quirky vibe that Niram was giving off. And it did kind of remind me of the caves in the Mole People. What did you think? Oh, yeah, I know. It was a pretty cool cave, even airier than the one in Mr. Nobody. Mm-hmm. I think the moody colors, you know, added a lot of extra ambience. Exactly, exactly. Well, Smith may be salivating over all those gems, but they're nothing more than a dang nuisance to Niram. What he extracts is more precious than mere jewels. Niram instructs Zack Boy to shovel a few loads of those mere diamonds into his weird refining contraption, a task which, due to his delicate back, he quickly pawns off onto Will. Yeah, you know, I wasn't sure if he was shoveling diamonds or quartz because they look different from the diamonds at the beginning. They, these look more like just broken glass. But mm. I like the idea that they were diamonds better because, you know, diamonds are super compressed coal and coal's kind of a fuel and they were using it to <laughs> stoke the furnace or whatever. So that would have worked either way. Yeah. That's funny how he always manages to have a delicate backache right at the moment any work is required. <laughs> Required, yeah, though. but later on, he's going to have super strength in that back. You wait and see. Yeah, it's all about the motivation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Watching the Malvi Miner draw off a few precious ounces of gold and fluid from his cosmic smelter into a tiny Erlenmeyer flask, the boys learn that good things do indeed come in small doses. 
because it turns out that cosmonium is the very quintessence of the living force that puts the living breath in everything that grows. Certainly sounds beyond price to Zack Boy, but I couldn't help notice, though, that Narum was pretty sloppy with that precious fluid because when he first turned on that little spigot, he spilled about half of it. But I suppose the only thing pricier than spilled cosmonium to Uncle Irwin is shooting a retake, Kurt. <laughs> yeah, you notice that too. He barely has a quarter of the flask full when he corks it off, but when he raises it up at another camera angle, it's suddenly full to the top. And even funnier, it looks just like a urine sample full of warm <laughs> yellow piss. Of all the episodes to start shooting color, it had to be this one, you know. But, I mean, I would have used a glowing green. Remember how the, and the reanimator, how cool that looked? You know, that, w- that would have been better. But, hey, maybe I'm just particularly sensitive about it because of all those drug tests. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, as the eccentric engineer excuses himself to continue his blastin', he blandly assures a troubled young Will that a little shaking here and there won't do the planet no harm. Well, all these revelations have the wheels turning in Dr. Smith's scheming brain. Oh, Mr. Nirm, we shall of course meet again. Can't think of no good reason why we should. The camera closes in on Smith's devious face. Perhaps I'll think of a reason. Before the boys depart the cave, Dr. Smith advises Will to keep Mr. Nearham's revelations our little secret. We all saw that coming, didn't we? Oh yeah, that's for sure. It also looked like the diamond that fell to the floor earlier has somehow grown back to the end of that stalactite. <laughs> like I said, that's the one cool cave. It really is. Then, with a puff of Smith's hot air, the boys kick off and float back up the shaft to the surface. Where they're greeted by a worried Judy and an ornery Major West, who orders Smith to make like a racehorse at the track and get back to the ship. Racehorse indeed, Major. The scene ends on a comic note as everyone starts for the chariot. Everyone but the robot whose computers must have been rattled by that planet quake because B9 rolls away in the opposite direction. (laughs) That causes Dr. Smith to roll his eyes and scold. No, no, this way, you blithering pumpkin. Then they all exit out of the frame. By the way, Kurt, have you ever noticed how whenever Don yells at Dr. Smith, it's suddenly time for Smith to yell at the robot, although he did... (laughs) He did make that easy for Smith, didn't he? Yeah. I guess when you kick the dog, the dog will want to bite the cat. You know, it's it's Dr. Smith's version of pay it forward. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say. Later that night, we dissolve back to the Jupiter 2. The castaways are cluttered around the seismograph, and Professor Robinson's concerned. The quakes are increasing in intensity. If they persist, Preplanus won't be able to stand much more. Marine takes a break from polishing the plexiglass dome on the astrogator with turtle wax to ask, if that's so, what will happen to the planet? Before John can answer. The area is rocked by an even more violent seismic convulsion, which has the Robinsons practically bouncing off the walls of the Jupiter 2. 
What's worse, those walls are now erupting in showers of high-voltage sparks. Oh, dear. Strangely, for once, the only castaway not distressed by the pandemonium is Dr. Smith, who appears more delighted than shaken up. Hmm. Well, Smith loves it when everyone is terrified about something that he knows is not dangerous at all. Remember how in The Derelict, he was very smug when he thought the aliens were his spy masters come mm. to collect him? <laughs> He's displaying the same groundless bravado here. It's true. It's true. He's at his most confident when he's absolutely, totally wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, when the tremors finally subside, the professor orders the robot to compute the current state of the planet. Myoseismal area of shock increasing. Region of seismic focus now distributed over entire planet. Subterranean displacement of geologic structure, total and continuous. Core of planet in condition of molten ferment. I love that last robot line. Core of planet in condition of molten ferment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Dick Tufeld was really emoting there. I guess that's underscoring the dramatic (laughs) danger we're all in. Molten ferment. Yeah, I'll have to remember that one. Mm. With the act reaching a climax, John gravely announces that it's worse than he thought. Within a matter of hours, the planet will cease to exist. It will disintegrate into cosmic dust. But despite the fact that, as a geologist, this is the one area that Professor Robinson really should be a know-it-all, Dr. Smith smugly disagrees. Cosmic dust, my dear Professor. Cosmic dust, indeed. Dr. Smith, would you prefer gamma rays? Ah, well, I don't suppose I'd be betraying too much of confidence if I told you that all of these alarums and excursions are merely the result of some completely harmless detonation set off by a most remarkable mining engineer, my very good friend, Mr. Nerim. And just where is this uh, very remarkable mining engineer, Dr. Smith? Oh, he's buried. No, Dad, he's really there. We both saw him. He's got a big excavation down there up near the drill site and lots of equipment for... Uh, For his own private smelting process. What does he smelt? You wouldn't understand, my dear, any more than I do. But after all, this is a free planet. It's a disintegrating planet, Dr. Smith. And regardless of what your very good friend, Mr. Nairam, told you about his detonations being harmless, I'm convinced he doesn't know what he's doing. And he's made it impossible for us to remain here any longer. Well, can't we stop him from doing any more blasting? If we could, darling, it wouldn't do any good. He's begun a destructive process that can't be stopped. Come, come, Professor. Let's not throw everyone into a tizzy. I can assure you I'm the most reliable authority. Never mind the reliable authority, Smith. I agree with John. This may be a free planet, but your buddy, whoever he is, has made a condemned world out of it. Despite Smith's glib reassurances, both John and the Major aren't buying it. In fact... Smith's buddy has set off a chain reaction that will end in the destruction of the entire planet. And they only have 12 to 15 hours to make, like, outer space Okies, pack up the Jupiter 2, and blast off into space before Preplanus depressingly turns into a cosmic dust bowl. Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah, that cosmic dust is nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) 
Unable to sway his fellow castaways, Smith inquires as to their destination and is greatly disappointed to hear that instead of the green hills of Earth, the Robinsons are still determined to press on to Alpha Centauri. Frustrated and bored, Smith announces in a pompous tone that he's very bored by this and he's decided to take a nap. (laughs) Instructing the girls to stand aside, the good doctor mounts the electronic elevator and descends to the lower deck wearing a look of utter disdain. <laughs> yeah, you, you would think that the rest of the crew would tell Smith to ixnay on the atnay because they need everyone awake and chipping in to get the ship ready as soon as possible. But we're talking Smith here, and they're probably kind of glad that he's just going to take a nap so they'll just be out of the way for a while. <laughs> that, that's my thing. Uh, that's probably right. The castaways will have to deal with the delusional doctor later. John issues marching instructions to the rest of the family. They're going to have a weight problem for takeoff, so they'll have to throw out everything they don't need. Except Smith. (laughs) (laughs) They need him for the ratings. Uh, (laughs) Maureen and the children head below to tackle the light stuff, while the men go outside to take care of the heavy gear foreshadowing a smashing end to this first act, I couldn't help but notice a huge Indiana Jones-sized purple boulder ominously perched on top of a rock ledge just above the men as they grapple with a large piece of equipment. And wouldn't you know it, Kurt, right on cue, another planet quake kicks off. Causing that gargantuan stone sphere to teeter dangerously. Oh dear. I thought for sure Don's foot fetish pen pal was going to get another reason to be impressed by Mark Goddard's acting feats. But for once, the Major's leg is spared, and somehow both men manage to stagger out of the way of that massive wrecking ball right before it crashes down on the spot where they just stood. Oh, the tension. That was so close. Now, that boulder should have gotten a guest star credit in this episode because it's not only got the big close-up shot, but it definitely wasn't there in any of the other episodes. So it really stood out. Wow. And they had to make it purple just so you wouldn't miss it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Well, that was too close for comfort, but I'm sure there are more thrills to come after this station identification. Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act Two, we're back outside the Jupiter campsite. The Robinsons work feverishly to dispose of the unneeded items and lighten their load before blast off at 0600 the next morning. You know, I had to laugh at the mountain of sporting equipment like fishing poles, fencing masks, tennis rackets, all that stuff they were tossing onto the junk pile. It had all the makings of a galactic-sized garage sale. But even funnier was the line that Judy tells Maureen, you never realize how much stuff you accumulate until you have to get rid of it. (laughs) (laughs) Accumulate in space. Yeah. Yeah. And if they didn't bring that stuff with them, I'd like to know where the Walmart is on Preplanus. That's funny. 
Oh, amen to that. Conspicuously missing from the pile are all those costumes that Smith has worn only once and never again, like the safari hats, the the monk cloak, the World War II pith helmet. You know, he sure has a ton of stuff, especially for a guy who never even packed because he was accidentally trapped on board at the last minute. Uh, That's just crazy. It is crazy. Mm. Yeah. And they don't bother. Here's a case where they don't bother telling you, like on Star Trek, they could come up with anything because they had the, what do they call that? The replicators or whatever. Right. Any, mm-hmm. Anything they needed, you know, oh, we'll just get this in the replicator, you know, even the food. And they could have always said, well, uh, we'd have more stuff, except we were running low on that. What was it called? Microteth or something? The stuff they needed from uh, Return from Outer Space. Oh, go car- back and carbon tetrachloride. It. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can't believe you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> the carbon tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But only if it's from that certain hardware store. Exactly. Hatfield Four Corners. Yep. Well, just as little Debbie the Bloop shows up to lend a hand, the area is once more pummeled <laughs> by savage shocks of seismic force. Everyone is knocked off their feet, and the ladies' screams of terror cause the men to run out of the ship in response. The tremors eventually subside, and thankfully, there are no serious casualties. None except for Dr. Smith's slumber, which has been severely disturbed by all their commotion. (laughs) When he appears wearing his wee-willy-winky nightcap, he's full of bluster for his fellow castaways. But his complaints fall on deaf ears. As far as John is concerned, they have a deadline for liftoff, and based on the growing intensity of the quakes, that deadline has now been pushed up. No, that again. Cosmic dust, molten core, and gamma rays. All that bogeyman terminology for scaring children. How tiresome it all is. Fed up with Smith's thick-skulled refusal to accept reality, Don orders him to take the chariot to the drill site and bring their equipment back. Now, why Don would trust Smith with such a task when they're running out of time is beyond me, especially after he mentions stopping off for a little neighborly chat with his good friend, Mr. Narum. But he hands over the keys. And you know what's funny? I never knew the chariot had keys. Well, neither did I. They must have been hiding them on top of the sun visor. You know, we should watch really close when the Jupiter 2 takes off to see if it has keys, too, because they're they're probably hiding those underneath the floor mat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, taking the keys, the good doctor doffs his nightcap into parts, adding, Thank you, Major. Never fear, Smith is here. (laughs) I can't believe that anyone, especially Don, would believe that bad back Smith could possibly pack up that heavy drill equipment, but here he goes, Kurt. Yeah, they should expect some excuse why it won't get done, and sure enough, they'll get one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Next, we see Dr. Smith making his midnight ride through the rocky canyons back to Naram's excavation site, thanks to some nice color stock footage that was shot for the original Lost in Space pilot. You can tell it's not new, but recycled, because if you look closely, all the seats inside the vehicle are occupied by parka-wearing Robinsons. We saw those shots before in season one, but it is fun to finally see it in color. As he rolls along, the giddy schemer is already counting his cosmonium before it's collected and sings to himself. Oh, my darling. Oh, my dear cosmonium. (laughs) Meanwhile, on the surface at Naram's excavation site, the 
planetary prospector tells his pack mule, Rober, they've got a heap of troubles. Not only has the burrow disabled their ship by gnawing on its thruster control unit, Naram confesses to his four-legged companion that he's blasted too much rock from pre-planets for his own good. And without that thruster control, they won't be able to take off before the whole dang planet falls apart. And the Big Bang becomes more than just a theory, at least in this patch of the universe. Yeah, he seems surprisingly forgiving to that mule for killing them both. (laughs) I mean, in fact, he seems more miffed at the guest who's about to show up unannounced than he is about his impending death. I guess when you get older, nothing is as bad as disrupting your routine, huh? Oh, you can say that again. (laughs) My soap opera's on. Don't interrupt. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, just then, Naram's lamentations are interrupted by the unexpected arrival of the chariot bearing company. Naram's in no mood to see Zack Boy again. What are you after now? But, uh, but my dear sir, you misjudge me. My fellow travelers, or should I say, my ex-fellow travelers, are convinced that because of your blasting, this planet in a matter of hours will disintegrate into cosmic dust. <laughs> now, isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> it, it is ridiculous, isn't it? Well, it's the stupidest fool nonsense I ever heard. This here planet has got layers and layers of rock so solid you could lay a burning sun right on it and the sun would just burn itself out and leave the planet untouched. Relieved, the devious doctor tells Niram, That's exactly what I told them if they wouldn't listen. They're leaving for Alpha Centauri. Of course, they'll never make it. As a matter of fact, I seriously doubt whether their ship is capable of leaving the ground. You always get this happy when other folks is in trouble, Zack boy. But, Mr. Nerim, I feel for them. I do. But they're really not my kind. There's not one among them I could call partner. Partner. Are you, uh, aiming to be, uh, my partner? Nothing would please me more. Oh, wow. That that felt a little awkward listening to these two middle-aged men becoming partners. I mean, what with today's modern parlance and all. Smith gets a sneaky look on his face, and then he leans in to suggest it, and the camera moves in on Niram as he slowly sets down his thruster and turns to suspiciously feel out Smith's intent. I think they would change all of that if they filmed it today, you know, because times have really changed. Well, you can say that again. But, you know, I liked it because it was like it showed how much more innocent times were back then. So we're definitely projecting our own dirty little minds on today's uh, screen. Yeah. But wasn't it golden? Oh, it was golden. It sure was. And as my wife's always saying, Lane, get your mind out of the gutter. Uh (laughs) You know. Prospecting is in my blood, you see. Well, stroking Rover's furry mule ears, Dr. Smith cuts his eyes away from the miner as he spins a tall tale of his own. My great-great-grandfather was a 49er, and my Uncle Thaddeus discovered the Comstock load all by himself. (laughs) Of course, they were only after mere gold, not anything as priceless as Cosmonium. They never would have understood its worth as we do, eh, partner? (laughs) 
but the miner balks at Zaki's generous offer. That little poke of Cosmonium is the last of his diggings. If he ever makes it home, it'll be his pension fund. Thus, he has no need for a partner. What he does need is a new thruster control. Having sized up Zackboy to be an easy mark, Naram dangles a little bait by mentioning that he'd give anything for a spare. Why, he reckons he'd even be willing to gamble most of his pension fund against a replacement part, if he had to. Prying the box of precious liquid sunshine out of Smith's greedy hands, Naram sets the hook. No, what's the use? No one's gonna bet with me. Obsessed with the desire to possess some of that priceless substance, Dr. Smith soothingly tells Mr. Naram to be of good cheer, for he may return. The scene ends with a chariot rolling out of the area, and the crusty con men waving by, wearing a knowing swindler smile. I wonder, Kurt, how many times can Smith be outfoxed before he learns his lesson? Oh, well, that would depend on how many more episodes there are, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so true. Well, you might have also noticed that it was Jonathan Harris's stunt double, Handsome Harry, that backed the chariot out of that scene. I guess they really didn't trust Smith with the keys after all. Well, you know, that might have been Jonathan Harris's doing because he was always telling Will not to take work away from the stunt doubles. So he was pretty generous in that way. That's right. And, you know, to be fair, you know, the way that he would always give out lollipops or uh, Tootsie Rolls and stuff like that showed he was aware of playing to the, the hired help and yeah. stuff like that. So yeah. it was a little bit like giving out cigars to your fellow workers, even if you don't smoke. It just is, <laughs> It's good politically. And I think Jonathan was very astute about how to play the political game. Indeed. Yep. Well, when we dissolve back at the Jupiter campsite, the Robinson girls are still busy as bees, tossing more unneeded recreational gear into an ever-growing pile of junk. When Dr. Smith pulls up in the chariot, he greets the ladies in a giddy mood, and even another powerful seismic shock. only intensifies his anticipation for that everlasting life-giving cosmonium. Inside the Jupiter II, the men and Will are busy working on the central astrogator, when suddenly an empty-handed Dr. Smith strides in without the drill gear. Although he's been to the site hundreds of times, he disingenuously claims that he lost his way in the dark. It'll take time they don't have for Don to go back there now, but John doesn't want to leave all that vital equipment behind. As the men discuss the dilemma in frustration, Dr. Smith notices a conveniently placed thruster control unit lying on the panel behind his back and deftly manages to pluck the device right under the noses of Professor Robinson and Major West. That's an amazing trick, but it's an even more amazing trick that Smith recognized that part as a thruster control. <laughs> well, lucky for Smith, the company that made that part is the same company that manufactured all that machinery used in the Batcave. You can tell because it has a big red label on the, on the other side that says thruster control. You'll notice that later when he places it on the gambling table. Oh, I miss that. That's funny. 
I always like that in the Batman, you know, bat analyzer. <laughs> yeah, well, those Blu-rays can't point out everything out. Sometimes you actually have to pay attention. Sorry. <laughs> That's funny. Uh-uh. Well, with time running out, Will offers to ride shotgun and guide Dr. Smith back to the drill site to retrieve the gear. With no other good options, John agrees, but sternly warns Smith that regardless of how he feels about such bogey words as cosmic dust, he wants them both back at the ship within two hours at the outside. Your wish is my command, sir. Bowing, the good doctor backs his way out of the hatch with the pilfered part well hidden from view. Warning, warning. Anytime Smith backs out of a room facing the wrong way, rest assured he's hiding something behind his back. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't suspicious at all. <laughs> in fact, the last time we saw him do that, he was also stealing a part in the, the Space Pirate, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. I think he might have been doing that. I've seen him do it dozens of times. He did it in Monster Plants when he was, he was escaping with the deuteronium mm-hmm. canisters behind his back there, too. Uh, he's quite the magician. On the ride back to the drill site, we get some more of that nice B-roll color footage of the chariot. And to Will's surprise, Dr. Smith knows where he's going. It seems Dr. Smith's eyes have grown accustomed to the dark. But when he misses the last turn to the drill site, Smith tells the dear boy that first he has a little something to deliver to Mr. Narum. The poor man needs a part for his spaceship. You can't give him that. That's a thruster control. Where'd you get it? No cause for alarm, my dear boy. I found it on the junk pile. Oh. Ah, here we are. Still wearing a look of concern, the boy holds his tongue as they reach the miner's excavation camp. But I have to say, I was a little surprised that after all the tricks Smith's pulled in the past, Will didn't wave the BS flag on Smith's story. Even if you accept that Will's being just a little naive, the excuse made no sense. If the part was on the junk pile, you'd assume it was broken. If so, why would it be of any use to Narum? Did that seem odd to you, Kurt? <laughs> yeah, it seemed odd. I mean, why would someone need a broken part? Don't they already have a broken part of their own? <laughs> but harder to fathom was Will's acceptance to take a detour when he believed the planet was about to explode. They needed to get back as soon as possible to lift off, if they wanted to live. But to be fair... I don't remember if that inconsistency stood out to me the first time I saw it. A lot of these little nitpicky things, they blow past you the first time. I'm amazed yeah. how often that happens. But, you know, we're like Ray Walston from My Favorite Martian. Our antennas are up and we're looking for this stuff. So It's true. Yeah, it's they, a little unfair. It is a little unfair. But then again, Kurt, if we didn't point out these little plot holes and inconsistencies, what would we have to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. And after all, we're only guilty like the rest of the audience. We don't watch it just one time. We watch it over and over and over again. (laughs) That's funny. Well, when we dissolve down to the excavation chamber, Dr. Smith and Mr. Neerum are seated at a small table. They both smile and chuckle as the Robinson's thruster control unit is placed next to two of Neerum's flasks of cosmonium. But Will can't understand why they have to play cards at all. Why doesn't Smith just give the part to the miner? Mr. Neerum is a proud and conscientious man. His pride would never allow him to accept charity. (laughs) Shuffling a set of oversized playing cards, Neerum concurs. That's right, Sonny. Never accepted no charity in my whole life. 
I'd rather gamble with my life savings than do that. And Bill berates Smith by responding, and you'd take it. (laughs) But Smith is unashamed. In fact, he basically tells Will to shut up by telling him, there's many a slip betwixt the cup and the lip. (laughs) Wasn't that wonderful? That was good. And the look that Bill Moomy gave Smith was just (laughs) precious. It was was a look of total disdain. (laughs) Great. Sometimes you wonder if they're really acting, you know? Getting down to business, Dr. Smith cuts the deck for deal. But when he flips over his card, he's totally flummoxed. Instead of clubs, hearts, spades, or even diamonds, Smith's card is a ten of galaxies. And all poor old Niram's got is a deuce of asteroids. Niram quickly explains to the confused and alarmed Smith how these cosmic canasta cards are rank-ordered from galaxies down to asteroids. The good news is that since he won the cut, Dr. Smith is starting out lucky. But a sudden ill-timed tremor has Will feeling like their luck is running out, which is what they should be doing right now. But Niram says it's just a little resettling, nothing to worry about. Then he quickly adds, Loser deals, right, Zack boy? Yes, of course. You know, it's, it's very confusing, and Smith is confused, too, because, I mean, he just, he won the cut, and then yeah. Niram gets the cut because he's the loser. <laughs> so it's kind of like, heads you win, tails I lose. Uh, this is not going to work out for Smith, I can tell you. Yeah. Well, it's, there's a reason why they don't let you deal your own cards in Las Vegas, Kurt. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> the house always wins, right? Naturally. With Will standing over his shoulder, Dr. Smith nervously watches as the cards are dealt. Picking up his hand to study his cards, Smith fails at maintaining a poker face when a sly smile crosses his lips. Closing in on Naram, the camera reveals he's wearing an even bigger grin and giggles. What you got, Zack boy? Flipping over his cards with a flourish, Smith gloats. Well, well, galaxies, a pair. I believe you said they were the highest. Mighty good. And always a winner. Ah, 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 but not so fast. Before Dr. Smith can rake in his chips, Naram flips over his last card. Except when somebody else has got a supernova. Once more, Dr. Smith has been left with a losing hand. On the other hand, now that he's won, Naram's in a big hurry to hightail it out of there with the Robinson's thruster control. But the eccentric excavator pauses long enough to admit that the planet ain't gonna be nothing but cosmic dust, and pretty quick, too. Before Smith can corral him, Naram ascends the shaft, calling out, That's the way the planet crumbles! With his dreams shattered... Oh, the pain. The pain. Smith's inconsolable, but Will's anxious to get out of there, when suddenly the dour mood is interrupted, when the little nipper notices two more flasks of cosmonium that the miner forgot. The discovery lifts Dr. Smith's spirits, who, despite Will's urging that they return it to Naram, decides to keep it as a consolation prize. Finders keepers! Mm -hmm. Even though his gambit wasn't a total loss... 
Smith can only bask briefly in his unexpected change of fortune. That's because, just then... The planet begins to quake once more. After a little misguided huffing and puffing, Will reminds Smith to push off, and they eventually float back up the mine shaft in a cloud of dust and steam. Kurt, does it seem odd to you that after cheating Smith out of the thruster control, Naram would leave two flasks of his precious cosmonium? Uh, you know, actually, I, it sort of made me wonder, did Niram do that on purpose, out of guilt, mm. or was it only by accident? I'd like to think he felt a little pang of guilt for leaving the Earthlings behind to die a horrible death, especially the young kids. So maybe he left two-thirds behind just as some sort of penance, you know, to <laughs> feel like he sacrificed something for saving his life. It reminds me of this little-known, then this is a real fact. That when the uh, Americans were blowing up the uh, Bikini Atoll with the hydrogen bomb, they actually paid like 20 natives $100 each to stay there (laughs) (laughs) so that they could hook them up to electroencephalograms and get a reading and find out what happened to their bodies when they blew up. And the natives (laughs) took it, you know, because like 100 bucks is a lot of money, you know? (laughs) This is how Smith is acting like, wow, I'm getting these two flasks. Oh my God! That can you imagine being the guy that's going now? Just sign this release here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know what readings they got on that test, but I sure hope they got their hundred bucks worth. <laughs> that's funny, in a sad sort of way. But uh, I guess we shouldn't be laughing too hard about that. Now that I think about th- th- it. This is more like funeral tears, folks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, I did like that mineshaft special effects. That was Lisa's favorite gimmick. She said it reminded her of the fizzy lifting pop scenes in the Willy Wonka movie. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, 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 where they would burp in order to go back down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. That was and, cool. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, wh- where did that come from? Do you think the writer put that in? Or do you think, you know, like they had a scene where they went up and down a ladder and somebody else went, oh, man, we can put in a special effect here. Because that's not normally the type of thing that a writer would think of. It's so visual, you know? It's very visual. Uh, no, I have no idea, but it, it certainly works. It's one of the nice little nuggets in this episode, I think. It's pretty neat. Once back on the surface, the tremors quickly subside. But the calm is interrupted again. By a familiar sound and very familiar looking special effects shot of the miner's ship taking off into the star-filled night. I say familiar, Kurt, because this was clearly the color version of Hapgood's traveling man lifting off into space. A shot that we've seen used several times before. And we'll see several times again, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) It made me think, if that's the same size as Hapgood's ship, it couldn't have been comfortable squeezing (laughs) Niram and the donkey into that little capsule. That's funny. Imagine the smell, too. Oh, well, that's assuming that he remembered to take his donkey. He might have left that behind the cave with a cosmonium, you know, out of sight, out of smell. Who knows? Oh, Kurt, I can stand the thought of leaving the Robinsons on the planet to die, but not the donkey. Come on, he couldn't be that bad. (laughs) Not the donkey. (laughs) But you'll notice they did not have that disclaimer at the end of this episode. They didn't say no donkeys were hurt in the production of this episode, so... That can be kind of an acknowledgement. The donkey bit the cosmic dust. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) (laughs) 
Dr. Smith is delighted to see the last of his dear friend, Mr. Narum, especially without two of his precious flasks of cosmonium, but then moans when he discovers that the planet quakes have toppled his memorial effigy. Will, Will, my monument, oh... Will's in a hurry to grab the drill gear and get back before launch time, but Dr. Smith insists on trying to restore his likeness to an upright position. Why? (laughs) (laughs) The boys struggle to move one of the heavy pillars off the statue, but unfortunately, Smith loses his grip and inadvertently crushes one of the precious flasks of cosmonium which oozes all over his fallen figure. The camera lingers on this long enough to foreshadow trouble ahead, but with time running out before liftoff, Smith gives in to circumstances and agrees to abandon his fallen figure, taking the remaining flask with him as they board the chariot. I felt Smith's pain at that point because that's the same kind of boneheaded move I would pull. You know, you sit the two flasks right down to the thing you're trying to move and then you break one of them with <laughs> the thing you're moving. Except for me, it probably would have been both of the flasks. But on top of that, the statue is still on the ground. So no wonder he was pissed. That and the fact that the liquid looked like this. I mean, it was amazing to me to see how much strength Smith exerted to lift that stone column. You know, we were just talking about how his back was supposedly hurting and now suddenly he's Superman, you know. Funny how that malady works on a selective basis with Smith. Yes, very selective indeed. With the act nearing a close, the boys roll out of the area for the drill site, but they fail to notice the spilled cosmonium begin to sparkle and form a huge cloud of purple cosmic gas around the toppled sculpture. When the purple haze clears, we see this strange molecular reaction has transmuted the statue from an inanimate object into a living creature. Uh Uh-oh. Tossing away the heavy stone columns like twigs, the granite ghoul lumbers zombie-like after the chariot and our two clueless castaways. Oh, dear. Well, I'm sensing a rocky road ahead for the boys, but we'll have to wait until after this commercial to find out what's in store next. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Now, the most exciting colors in color TV. Captured by Zenith in the biggest color picture Zenith has ever made. This is Zenith's new handcrafted 25-inch rectangular color TV. Its new sunshine color tube, shaped like a movie screen, has a new rare earth phosphor for greater picture brightness with redder reds, brighter greens, and more brilliant blues. A giant 25-inch picture, yet the tube is four inches shorter, fits a new beautifully slim cabinet. Inside, the famous Zenith handcrafted color chassis, with no printed circuits, no production shortcuts. Built better for greater dependability and fewer service problems. It's the ultimate in color TV. Available with Zenith Space Command remote control tuning in the elegance of ultra-slim fine furniture cabinetry. No wonder Zenith is America's largest selling TV. At Zenith, the quality goes in before the name goes on. When we return from the break to start Act 3, we're over at the drill site. Dr. Smith sits comfortably watching as Will does all the heavy lifting to pack up the equipment. 
Is this really necessary, my boy? Major West himself said he was perfectly willing to forget all of this drilling equipment. Dad said we may need it on Alpha Centauri. Then why did we have to leave the chariot so far away? Dad said we had to conserve fuel. Oh, the pain, the pain. Alpha Centauri, of all places, when Earth is so close, he'll never make it. I really must have a very serious talk with him. He won't listen to you. Why not? You've made too many mistakes lately. First you said the blasting was harmless, and then you said the planet would never break up. Indeed. Must a man be haunted by a few trivial errors in his past? Just at that moment... (laughs) Smith is shocked by the sudden appearance of his gruesome golem. Smith uses Will as a human shield and shouts, It's alive! Young Will senses that the marble mummy wants something, so the frantic physician orders the boy to offer it the toolkit, but the concrete creature kicks it aside. So the boys make like the wind and race back to the chariot, which, in an effort to save gas, they've inconveniently parked several yards away. Thankfully, that metamorphic monster is no sprinter, So even Dr. Smith's geriatric jogging is fast enough to put a little distance between the boys and certain doom. Meanwhile, back at the Jupiter 2, John is concerned because Will and Smith are long overdue. Fearing the worst and with little time left before their 6 a.m. launch window, the professor straps on the rocket belt and jets off to the drill site to search for the missing pair. Kurt, you might notice, he's changed out of his green duds and back into his old season one blue costume to match the jetpack stock shots filmed for No Place to Hide. It doesn't matter that they're short of time and the planet's about to blow up. He still has time to change. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I didn't mind that little tell, Kurt, because it is a chance to see some more of that cool rocket belt footage, and this time in color. Of course, it's also combined with some new close-up shots of John searching for Will. Yeah, although I, I really missed that Bernard Herrmann uh, jet rocket music. That was always a, a thrill with that scene, was hearing that music. Yeah. That and the chariot, you just, every time you see him, you expect to hear that music. So. Yeah, it's got its own theme song. <laughs> well, back near the drill site, the boys are still running for their lives from the rocky rascal and take refuge inside the chariot. By the menacing mutant's behavior, it's obvious to Will and us that this Fred Flintstein wants that remaining flask of Cosmonium. But despite the looming threat, Dr. Smith just can't bring himself to part with his precious prize. The hysterical Smith struggles to get the chariot moving, but he must have lost the keys Don loaned him because he can't seem to get it to budge. Oh dear. Standing mere inches away, the creepy creature begins pounding on the vehicle's windows. But Smith refuses to open up, which causes the outraged ogre to shatter the glass. Fearing for his life, Dr. Smith finally tosses the flask out to the brute, which it quickly devours. this fellow has a real drinking problem and wants even more of the animating elixir. With nothing else to offer the stoned Cosmonium fiend, 
It looks as if it's curtains for our terrified twosome. Oh, please, please go away. But before the moaning mummy can wrap up Smith and Will, Professor Robinson soars into the rescue. Sporting his new and improved Season 2 Silver Laser Pistol. John fires a couple of well-aimed blasts at the Concrete Colossus. Which thankfully drives the loping Lummox away from the area. By the way, Kurt, did you notice that Irwin saved money on one of those laser shots by just giving us the sound effect and skimping on the animation shot? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a cheap Charlie way to save a few hundred bucks on a special effect. It saves some time, too, and time is money. Uh -uh -uh. Uh-uh-uh. But it works, so so no biggie. Now, did you notice that when the rock monster smashes the window, they show him bust the glass, but then it cuts to Smith and Will terrified while shards of glass rain down on them. Mm -hmm. That broken candy glass really sold the action and made it seem so much closer to the danger and amped up the threat. It was a cheap effect, but very effective. And while lots of other directors might have forgotten about the broken glass shards, Nathan didn't, so kudos on that. No, that was. It was really cool the way that he did that. And uh, I saw those shards flying, and I thought one of them was actually going to hit Bill Mooney in the eyes. So it, it did add to the tension for sure. And you know, I think it also added to the tension that they didn't show the first laser shot because, you know, we are supposed to be seeing everything through the eyes of Will and Smith at that point, and they're focusing on the monster. Uh. And so it's very disconcerting. You're watching the monster, and you hear this laser blast, and it's like, where's this coming from? So it's sort of like, you know, it's just it adds to the terror, and then you cut back and you see, oh, it's Dad. He's there. He's, you know, maybe we're going to mm-hmm. get out of this thing after all. So that really worked well, too. That's right. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have seen it because... John was actually behind them, I guess, in a way. Yep. Yeah, you're not going to focus on the sound of a a jetpack when a monster is right in front of you reaching at you, you know? I mean, that's just how you are. Yeah, okay. I I can kind of buy it. It, We're seeing it from their perspective. I I hear you. Mm -hmm. But don't forget, it's still... Saves money! (laughs) (laughs) Well, even though the danger from Mr. Mineral has passed... With the countdown ticking away, there's no time to celebrate. So the threesome pile into the chariot and retreat back to the Jupiter 2 before time runs out. Yeah, and let that close call with the hungry statue be a lesson to you kids. Never feed the bears. It's just like in Yellowstone. (laughs) Amen. Well, a little while later, with the act nearing an end, we're back inside the ship, and there's only five minutes to go before blast-off. After being marooned on this miserable planet for almost an entire season of TV, Professor Robinson must sense the gravity of the moment, and decides to leave co-pilot Don at the controls to complete pre-lift-off checks, while he goes down below deck to check on the family, including Debbie, the robot, and even our reluctant stowaway, Dr. Smith. Smith! My dear, Smith is here. What have you got there? My motion sickness remedy. All right, take it and get in the chair. Cheers. Oh, I don't suppose there's anything more I could say that would make you change your mind about our destination. Oh, we're not going to go through all that again now, are we, Doctor? You realize, of course, that no human eye has ever seen Alpha Centauri. We can't even be sure that it's habitable. 
I'm well aware of that, Doctor. In that case, I strongly urge that we change our course for a place that we know really exists. Get in that chair, Smith, and buckle your seatbelt. All secure? Robot in magnetic lock. I will maintain myself in magnetic lock until further orders. Ah, that's a thrilling bit of news, you bumbling bird brain. (laughs) (laughs) Once everyone is safely strapped into their acceleration couches, the father of our space family takes time to individually speak with every member of the Robinson tribe and steady their nerves for what's expected to be a truly wild adventure. The funny thing was, he manages to steal a kiss from daughter Judy, but all Marine rates is a gentle pat on the cheek. I wonder if that was an indication of the CBS censor's preferences, or of Guy Williams, Kurt. Ah, yeah, you caught that too, huh? You know, Maureen must have felt like a real potted plant at that point. (laughs) She better keep an eye on Guy. That's crazy. Well, you know, the other funny thing I noticed, unlike in season one, our castaways are not wearing their Reynolds Wrap spacesuits for their blast off into space. Just their usual velour fatigues. Any theories on that one, sir? Uh, yeah, I'm going to blame Uncle Irwin's tight wad budget on that one, because now he's paying an extra 40 grand per episode to have the color, and I bet he was determined to take full advantage of every drop of color at every opportunity that is afforded, even if it meant risking the lives of the entire crew with highly flammable uniforms during takeoff. <laughs> Well, no, if you think about it, too, they would have had to make a new spacesuit for Dr. Smith because he didn't have one when they took off, so he saved even more money. Oh, yeah, hey, it's, everyone's a winner. Exactly. Well, having dispensed with the sappy pre-departure briefing, John returns topside and takes the command chair. Three, two, And moments later, one, the ship lifts off. Zero, firing one in two. beautifully executed special effects shot that features powerful jets of high-pressure gas shooting up from the flaming sands. It was curious, though, to see the miniature's landing gear retract into the bottom of the ship as it slowly rises from the surface. Because as I recall, when the Jupiter II crash landed on Preplanus way back in Island in the Sky, I had always assumed, based on how the ship appeared to be buried half in the soil, that it was a gear-up landing. Did that bother you when you saw those gear retract, Kurt? Well, yeah. (laughs) It was was half buried because it didn't land, it crash-landed. And if it had any of its landing gear stuck out when it crashed, it would have been ripped off on impact. So Mm. it was a continuity error, plain and simple, but... You know, I suspect that blooper was intentional because seeing that gear pull into the ship was pretty darn cool. And knowing Irwin, he probably figured, if I pay that money to have the landing gear capable of going in and out, I want to show it, damn it. (laughs) And I think that's how they did it. And, you know, the first time I saw it, I didn't even notice it. Yeah. Actually, what caught my attention was when I saw it in the training cars. Because I saw Ron's picture of that, and I thought, oops, Ron made a mistake. He's showing the landing gear. And then I went back, and I saw the episode, and it was there. And I went, oh, well, I guess, you know, he was being true to the episode. He did it deliberately, just like Irwin did. And it does look cool, even in the trading cards. So go figure. 
Uh, it does look cool. You know, it's funny. There's probably some sharpshooter out there that'll tell us there's a perfectly logical reason for it. Well, I, I would love to hear what that perfectly logical explanation is. Maybe they lowered it down when they're lifting off in case they set back down. But since the, the planet is about to explode, there's really no point in that, is there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm at a loss. Either way, we're treated to some marvelous miniature and pyrotechnics work during this whole sequence, which, as you said, it's really cool. The Jupiter's rockets aren't the only fireworks, though, because just as they gain some altitude, the surface of Preplanus starts to erupt with violent explosions of flames, smoke, and debris. Yeah, the takeoff scene was worth the price of admission. We've been waiting for 25 episodes, and mm-hmm. it delivers. Because remember, those first several episodes are still in space. So right. it's been a long 25. It's been a long time, indeed. With the planet beginning to implode, our space pioneers are being buffeted by shockwaves. And what's worse, a frantic alarm announces something's gone wrong with the Jupiter 2's propulsion system. Major West makes a dire announcement. The ship's starting to roll, and unless they can stabilize it and gain sufficient power to break free from the disintegrating world's gravitational field, this could turn into a one-way trip to nowhere for our space pioneers. This act closes on a dramatic shot of the crippled Jupiter 2 careening through a giant explosion of fire and debris. What could possibly have caused the ship to malfunction at the worst possible moment? And will our castaways be able to correct whatever's wrong before they're blown into cosmic dust too? I have a feeling I know the answer to both those questions, but I guess we'll have to wait until after this word from our sponsor to learn the answers. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... This nonprofit podcast is made possible with support from... Monster Wax Trading Cards, makers of science fiction and horror monster cards since 1992. Check out their newest series, Lost in Space, The Art of Ron Gross. It's a dramatic retrospective of the classic TV show in an incredible photorealistic style. Check them out at monsterwax.com. That's monster, W-A-X, dot com. And also through the generous support of listeners via Patreon, where fans fuel their favorite shows. If you'd like to help, just visit patreon.com and search Alpha Control. When we return from the break to start what might be the last act for the Robinson family, the Jupiter 2 is still rocking and rolling above the fiery surface of the planet. Despite Major West's best effort to break free, they're starting to lose complete control. It's clear to everyone below deck that this is more than just a little unexpected air turbulence. They're in real trouble. Worried, Maureen uses the intercom to contact John who reports there's a short in the thruster control, and that's what's preventing them from achieving escape velocity. Uh Uh-oh. He tries to reassure Marine that they'll be able to fix it, and right on cue, Don bolts out of his seat to effect repairs. 
After hearing the dire news about their sinking fortunes, Dr. Smith makes a deathbed confession, admitting that the thruster control he lost to Mr. Narum was not from the junk pile, but rather one that he swiped from the central astrogator. Mm. Mrs. Robinson orders Dr. Smith to the upper deck to fess up to the man about that thruster control. To keep him honest, she tells Will to go along with the fearful physician. I have to ask, Kurt, why doesn't Maureen just tell John over the intercom about the missing thruster control instead of having the boys unbuckle and go upstairs during an emergency? That seemed odd. Oh, that's easy, because she, like us, loves to watch fireworks and pyrotechnics. Not the kind exploding below on the planet, but the ones about to explode above when Major West hears what Smith did. <laughs> now, I was a little curious. How was it that Major West and Professor Robinson managed to put the astrogator back together and nobody noticed the thruster control was missing, especially after they set it out on the counter for Smith to swipe? Yeah, that made no sense. But, you know, there was a lot of pressure, so anything's possible, I guess. I guess. Hmm. Well, the boys hear and obey, but as soon as they get topside... Smith has second thoughts about coming clean to Don. With some urgent prodding by Will, Smith finally spills the beans, which enrages Major West. But before he can get his hands around Smith's scrawny neck, there's a violent blast from the exploding planet, which causes a breach in the ship's hull. Oh dear. Struggling to keep the ship from crashing down into the imploding planet, Professor Robinson shouts that they're losing cabin pressure. Faced with the prospect of being blown to bits or suffocating to death is a real Hobson's choice, but Don's not giving up without a fight. He races over to the hull rupture, which luckily for us is next to the porthole, so we get to see the air escaping outside the ship. Then he manages to seal the leak, much like he did in the season one premiere, with a perfectly sized metallic patch. Oh boy, so now we're not just recycling props and stock footage, but we're recycling plot points, Kurt. Uh Oh, the pain. Oh man, I gotta get me some of those metallic patches for my steel-belted radials. I mean, those things really do stop leaks. Wow! (laughs) Well, in any event, with the leak stopped, Don races back over to the astrogator to patch up the faulty thruster control with mere seconds to spare before the Jupiter-2 and all aboard are pulverized into space dust, just like pre-Planus, the Major finally announces that the unit is repaired and tells John to punch it. Miraculously, the Jupiter-2 is finally able to pull out of its death spiral and blast off into deep space just as the dying planet disintegrates. John gives Maureen the good news over the intercom. They can relax now. They're on their way. With calm restored, everyone breathes a sigh of relief. But as our space family Robinson gathers on the upper deck to savor the moment, Professor Robinson takes time to deliver a lecture to Dr. Smith. The dressing down is interrupted when Penny calls everyone over to the main viewport to take in a beautiful sight. 
A brilliant purple nova flare has erupted against the starry blackness of outer space, and it's bathing the spaceship and our castaways in a glorious rainbow-like blanket of light. But Dr. Smith's attention is suddenly captured by another celestial phenomena. Oh, I think I see a familiar planet out there. That's not a planet, Dr. Smith. That's a red dwarf star. For a moment, I thought it might be. Don tells Smith to forget about it, adding with delight that whatever he thought it might be, they happen to be pulling away from it at approximately 50% of light velocity. With that, this first episode of Season 2 ends comically for us, but dismally for Dr. Smith, as he peers sadly out of the viewport and moans, Light velocity? Oh dear, I can feel my motion sickness coming back. Oh, the pain. The pain. (laughs) Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on Blast Off Into Space. Ah, well, I mean, to be honest, I was a little disappointed the first time I saw it. In fact, I was a lot disappointed. It suffered a lot from the uh, hard act to follow curse. In much the same way that the six-episode Welcome Stranger suffered. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. It wasn't a bad episode, but after those first five, it just looked bad in comparison. So, uh, you know, the entire first season was very solid. And that last episode, Follow the Leader, wow, that was one of the best episodes. So to have that to come right after that was very, very tough. Right. In addition to that, all the wonderful music that we associated with the first season was gone in this episode. And a lot of it is replaced with the more generic-sounding music. It's not bad music, but it just doesn't seem as inspired as the other music was. And we don't have any of those associations that we had with that other music. But, you know, maybe it's like girlfriends. If if the last one leaves you and you're still in love with them, it's going to be a little hard for you to fall in love with the next one, at least until you get over the other one, you know, and get used to the new one. Mm. So the more I saw this episode, the better I liked it. But I have a long way to go before I could describe loving this new incarnation of the show. A a very long way to go. Yeah, it is a contrast, especially when you ended season one with that follow the leader. We've fully morphed into a different type of show for some reason. We were heading that way with a few of the episodes as we got towards the last half of season one. But I think this is a sort of a... uh, an indication of things to come. Yeah, and this guy, the the guest star, he took some getting used to, too, because I think anytime they bring in a character who's got a real thick accent, a kind of put-on accent, like Tucker or Hapgood, you just have to kind of get used to it, because it is clearly over the top. And for a while, it just it kind of it's just waving a red flag in your face. And after 15 minutes or so, you get kind of used to it, and then you, you can kind of settle down. Like with Pirate Tucker... I mean, it really stood out at first. I thought, this is so phony baloney. But about halfway through, I actually started liking the guy a lot. And that happens with this episode, too. You get used to him and you start to like him. Now, the monster, he was also pretty lackluster in my estimation. But, you know, you did get a few good growls out of him. So, And I was pleasantly surprised how much I enjoyed the color being added. You know, because when we go back and listen to those first episodes on the podcast, which, of course, Mm -hmm. we never do because that would be vain. (laughs) But if we were to do it, uh, we pretty much pan the idea of colorization. But when you see it actually done, it does look better. There's no doubt about it. So even though we have a lot of nostalgia associated with the black and white episodes, I can see why they did it. And I'm glad that they did it. 
And I would understand why they would go back and colorize the first episode so that people would be more attracted to watching that first season. So we were just wrong on on that. I mean, I feel I was wrong uh, trashing it back then. Yeah, it is funny. You know, we're kind of not forced, but we do watch these episodes multiple times prepping for the show. And some of these things that stand out and bother you at first, you made a great point. After you're used to them, whether it's the accent or the goofy costume or what have you, you do tend to just like put that aside and then sort of concentrate on the story and you pick up on some good things like, hey, we're back in space. That's something to be happy Mm -hmm. about. Yeah, that's a biggie. And we had a lot of great special effect shots with the Jupiter 2, you know. But I agree with you, you know, more than anything else I missed was the John Williams and the Herman Stein music. It's not that, like you said, the Leith Stevens score is bad. It just doesn't seem to have that punch you're looking for. And like we talked about so many times in season one, the monster may not look that scary, but the sound effects and especially the music Mm. elevates some of those things and really adds to the tension, the drama or the scare factor. And I think that was something that was just a little bit missing. If you had heard that famous, you know, monster cue from John Williams, when the mummy comes alive, I think I would have been, oh boy, what are we going to see next? You know, it would have really added something. And as you get older, at least for me, I begin to realize how associating things is so important. You know, they always say the family that eats together stays together and stuff like that. It's not that they're eating together that keeps them together. It's that you associate the pleasant process of eating with being with those people. And so when you see those people, you start to feel good and you don't even know what it is. And that's how this music is. This is a liminal way of tying you together with the fear of hearing that cue or the excitement of hearing the adventure cue or the thrill of hearing the the jet rocket cue. And, And I'm missing that right now. Exactly. Well, you won't miss it for the entire season because the producers must have realized that they needed it because they will track all that season one music into a lot of episodes of season two. Oh, good. Yeah. Another thing I'd like to mention, just like in season one, one of the cool things we'll see for these first four episodes in season two is they're loosely tied together in a story arc so that the cliffhanger that we're going to talk about in a minute is directly related to the story that we've just watched. And they'll do that for the first four episodes. And then after that, they'll switch it up and say, oh, no, every cliffhanger is just going to be a complete reset. It's almost like the previous episode didn't even happen. There's no continuity whatsoever. So Yeah, because I remember as a kid watching that and thinking, what's going on here? You know, last week they were about to fall off a cliff and now they're like having a picnic. That didn't make any sense. And as I got older, I thought, oh, they just have gotten them out of order. You know, the syndication is not keeping them in the order. And now you're telling me, no, it wasn't that. They just like, no one's going to remember. Oh man, they really think we have no memory of these things. It's true. Yeah. So the first four, they are following a a loose story arc. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like the serialized TV today is, but after that, it's just hit the reset button. Because like you said, in syndication, they're not going to necessarily broadcast them all in order. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Last thing I'll say about this episode is, and this is just a little warning, many fans consider this their favorite episode of season two. Now, I won't go that far, but I did find it entertaining. I think I already know there's a couple of episodes that I'm really looking forward to watching again, because when I think about season two, those are the ones that stand out. You know, this one was still entertaining, but it's I'm not going to give it my favorite vote yet. Well, I sure hope not. (laughs) Because if this is the favorite, then it's going to be a dry spell for a while. But, you know, it does feel like the first season had 
It had interesting characters, but it was a lot more plot driven. And now we're kind of getting into this area where it's the plot is sort of convoluted and it's just an excuse to bring in a character where the real emphasis is going to be on. We're going to get somebody famous or some famous character to play his cowboy guy or whatever role it is, Mm. and we're going to focus that episode on that person. That's a little bit of a shame. I mean, I bet we're going to get some interesting characters, but I I sort of miss those cool plots of the first season already. Because if you ask me what this whole plot was about, it's sort of like, well, Miner comes to town and blows the planet up. You know, that doesn't really sound all that dramatic other than the planet blowing up and getting us off the planet. So, Well, don't panic yet because there are some good plots in some of the episodes. In fact, we're going to get a couple of them coming up, so we'll see. But yeah, that is the danger when they're banking on star power to sort of <laughs> carry, them through. carry them through. Exactly. So Wild. Okay. Well, before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. Sometime later, with the Jupiter-2 streaking through the cosmos two million miles from Earth and at nearly the speed of light, Dr. Smith decides to take matters into his own hands at the Central Astrogator and plot a course back towards Earth. Unfortunately, just at that moment, an alarm shows the Jupiter-2 heading directly for a huge, burning mass of cosmic dust, and the professor announces that there's nothing they can do to avoid it. In other words, they've had it. Oh dear. Have our castaways blasted off from the frying pan of Preplanus only to fly into the fire of that cosmic dust ball? Before we can find out, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Wow, Kurt. <laughs> the Jupiter 2 is so close to that burning mass when the freeze frame slides in, it's practically kissing it. So I have no idea how they're going to turn things around this time. Oh, they'll probably have a force field like they did in the life raft. (laughs) Be right there next to it. Oh, the force field was on. No problem. Uh, uh, It only works and it absolutely has to, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 31 of Lost in Space, titled Wild Adventure. That sounds fun. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via Libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.